here in chapter 3 we find the third of four charges that Paul gives in this personal letter to Timothy. But before he gives the third charge in chapter 3, he sets the background, which is what we looked at last week, the first nine verses of chapter 3. It begins with a familiar theme. If you look at verse number 1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. As I said last week, it seems that Timothy knows the things that Paul is going to write about. Um, It seems that this is really just an expansion of what he wrote in his earlier letter. So why is he repeating himself? I mean, why does Paul tell Timothy to understand or to know or to mark what he already knows? Well, I think in part, as I mentioned last week, Paul wants Timothy to know that this is not a passing phase. That somehow Timothy might have imagined that what Paul was going through, the persecution, that this was temporary. It was, and then things would, in fact, improve. No, it is, in fact, a permanent characteristic of the age. Um, As I said, maybe Timothy thought optimistically that one day things will get better, and Paul gives him no such hope or reassurance. So Paul writes about the last days. We read in the opening verses of the letter to the Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Either the apostles were mistaken that they thought Jesus was going to come back at any time, or in fact they understood what Scripture teaches, and that is that the coming of the Messiah marks the beginning of the last days. That everything before that is previous, it's it's prior. But when Jesus comes, we are now in a season known as the last days. Which means, by the way, that the church only exists in the last days. If you have the church, you have the last days. If you have the last days, you have the church. You can't have one without the other. So what Paul is writing here in the first nine verses is not a description of the future, that this is something down the road in the last, last days. He is writing about something that is true in the present. It is a description of the present. And as he describes the terrible nature of the last days, he writes in verses 2, 3, and 4 of moral conduct, or we might say immoral conduct, and then in verse 5, religious observances, and then in verses 6 through 9, the proselytizing zeal. Just to review quickly, in the first three, in verses three, 2, 3, and 4, Paul uses no fewer than 19 descriptions or expressions by which he describes the actions, the, act, the conduct of the people of the last days. As I mentioned last week, he begins with the fact that they are lovers of themselves, and he ends with that they are not lovers of God. Instead of being lovers of God, they are lovers of self, money, and pleasure, which would suggest that their loves are misdirected. And it is reflected in their behavior, in their attitudes, within themselves, they are proud, Within family, we are told that they are disobedient, ungrateful, and so on, and then within society. With regard to religious observances, we might be shocked to know that these are in fact religious people. Because if you read verses 1, 2, 3, you might think, okay, Paul is talking about a wicked, wicked society, that the church has to exist just surrounded by terrible sinners. But by the time we get to verse number 5, we begin to wonder if, in fact, he's talking about something else. 
And in fact, I think he is talking about people within the church. In verse number 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is to say, there is no internal reality. It's all show. It's all external. However, they are quite industrious. They're quite energetic, animated in what they do. We see, because we might think if they have a form of godliness but they deny its power, that they'd be sort of sluggish and lethargic. But in fact, they are quite energetic, as we see in their proselytizing zeal. They seek out the weak. They seek out weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now, I mentioned this earlier last week. There is a temptation or a tendency to see what Paul is writing here to say that it is about society at large. Verses 2 through 4, moral decline. But then religious observances and proselytizing zeal point us in a different direction. He's talking about those who profess to be Christians, people who go to church or who have started their own churches. They are false teachers. But what about society at large? Can you not make the case that this is what Paul is talking about? Particularly verses 2, 3, and 4, that he's talking about those people out there who are non-believers. No, he's not. I mentioned last week in 1 Corinthians 5, they're talking, or Paul is writing about kicking somebody out of the church because of their sin, and he writes this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So, does it mean that we just look, we focus in on ourselves and think nothing about society at large. No, let me suggest something to you. The state of society, the state of the culture, does in fact impact us as Christians and as the church. In Romans 12:2, Paul writes, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One paraphrase has it this way, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let society shape you into the way that it wants to be. I hope you get this. Please listen. The bad behavior and the false teachings that arise in a church, they don't come from nowhere. I know that's two negatives. They come from somewhere. They come from the surrounding culture. For example, in chapter 2, the denial of the resurrection. I didn't actually touch on this when we went through it, but if you look in chapter 2 at verses 17 and 18, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroyed the faith of some. The denial of the resurrection is a Greek heresy. Within the Greek worldview, there is no room, there is no place for resurrection. This just did not make sense to them. You may remember when Paul was on Mars Hill, when he's speaking to the meeting of the Areopagus in uh, Acts chapter 17. They listen. They listen carefully. But at a certain point, he loses them. 
They stopped listening. It's in verse number 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. For the Greeks, there's no place in, in that worldview, no place for resurrection. And in fact, the church in Corinth, and now we're reading through 1 Corinthians, Zib is for us, we will find that many of their bad behaviors come from the fact that they say the resurrection has already taken place. That is to say, they said Jesus was raised from the dead, that's the resurrection, and so now we are all in a sense resurrected in Jesus, and so we can do whatever we want. Among the Jews, with the exception of the Sadducees, who are very Hellenized, affected by Greek thinking, the resurrection was not an issue as such. All of God's people throughout history have lived in societies and cultures that were, to a certain degree, unchristian. And the pressure on Christians to conform has been enormous. Not only in direct challenges, where people challenge our faith, but oftentimes it sort of creeps in. It comes under the door, if you wish. It comes through the cracks. And before we know it, we are thinking like the world. We may not even realize what's going on. If you were to do a survey right now of the church around the world, you would find that in each country, they are off in different areas. And they are off because of the culture that they live in. So, for example, in this country, I won't talk about other countries, let's talk about us. In this country, the, the belief, the heresy, that God wants everyone to be healthy and prosperous, that's a very American heresy. Go to Africa or to third world countries where people, for lack of an antibiotic, lose their sight. That they die at an early age. If you were to get up and preach the heresy of health and prosperity, yeah, it'd be interesting, but people would know pretty soon that you were fake. In this country, at least before the recession, one person described it as being on an escalator. You don't have to do much, but the economy as a whole is doing well, so we keep prospering. And that becomes the American heresy. Um, or the radical individualism that we find among Americans. It marks our culture, it marks our day, and it marks the church. That, in fact, we think... Uh, Nobody is the boss of us. No one has a right to tell us what is right and what is wrong. That we will be guided by our conscience and the church has no business interfering or insinuating itself into our lives. That is what we find in this culture because it is the culture around us and it comes into the church. So I would suggest to you that we need to know what is going on in the culture around us. But we are not to stand in condemnation. In fact, what we are to do is, in fact, to preach the gospel, the good news to them. But we need to be on our guard that the culture, the heresy, the errors that might come in as a result, we need to be on our guard. But in contrast to the false teachers who are marked by moral decline, an empty show of religion and false teaching, Paul now calls Timothy to stand, to be different to continue in the faith, and if necessary, to stand alone. At the beginning of verses 10 and 14, which we will look at in a bit, in 14 at least in the NIV it has, but as for you, the 10 has you, however, but in the same, they're both the same in Greek, 
But as for you, in other words, Paul says, these are the false teachers in these last days. Look at their behavior. Empty religion. And they are proselyte, they're proselyte, uh, proselyting women who are weak-willed. They have followers. But as for you, Timothy, this is what you are supposed to do. You are to continue in the faith. And the keys to Timothy's continuing are two. Paul's example and scripture. Look, if you would, at verses 10 through 13, as Paul writes about his example. You, however, but as for you, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all, or from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In the light of the indictment of the false teachings, or the, the behavior of the false uh, teachers, Paul urges Timothy to remember what he knows about Paul. He says, You know all about my teaching. And the word know all about ordinarily in Greek would mean to accompany. But it came to mean to study at close quarters. That Timothy had in fact closely observed Paul's life. If you're taking notes in Luke chapter 1 verse 3, as Luke begins his gospel, he says to Theophilus, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It's the same word. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you know my life. You know all about it. You have studied the way I am. Among the Stoics, it became a term of the relationship between a disciple and his teacher. That the disciple would observe the teacher. Timothy was, in fact, the disciple, a follower of Paul. He had observed his life. Ten years before this letter is written, Paul had sent Timothy to Corinth. And he writes to the Corinthians... For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy knows he has observed about Paul. And it is very different from what Paul has just written about the false teachers. He knows about Paul's teaching, his way of life, his purpose, his faith, patience, love, and endurance, and his persecutions and sufferings. I must confess, and maybe you will agree with me, that we might have been happy enough if Paul had stopped after my teaching. In the King James, it's the word doctrine. How that you know my teaching. But Paul, in fact, does not stop there. And I think for a very specific reason, in my opinion. Some might think that Paul is boasting to Timothy about his virtues. I don't think he is at all. Rather, Paul is presenting to Timothy and to us the reality of the personal nature of the truth. That is to say, if Paul had said, you know my doctrine, then I think we would have been happy because then that's, that's something that's manageable, that's something you can put in a box. It's impersonal information. Write it down, you know this. But the truth, in fact, is not impersonal. It is to be lived out. And it had been lived out in Paul's life. And it is in contrast to the false teacher's example. 
Paul writes this time and time again in his letters, by the way. To the Corinthians, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And in Philippians, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. I think that I am hesitant, and perhaps you are as well, to accept what Paul has written here because of the culture we live in. We take a much more impersonal view of the truth. At the same time, we take a very personal view of it's just up to me. So the truth is seen as information, uh, data, uh, figures if you wish, but I'm the one who gets to decide what I'm going to do with this information. So the gospel becomes more information than it does a way of life, that it is to tell us how we're to live our lives. If, in fact, we think that the gospel is a way of living, we become convinced that we get to decide what that means. It becomes a matter of personal conscience. I think Paul would have nothing of this, that he would disagree with us. He would tell us, first of all, the truth is to be lived out in the life of the believer. Secondly, Paul had lived out the truth in his life. And thirdly, the truth is personal, not private, not individual, but it involves the person, the whole person. It is to be alive. So Paul doesn't stop at my teaching. He continues my way of life, my purpose. The ESV has my aim in life. My faith, patience, love, endurance, my persecutions, sufferings. Paul contrasts himself to the false teachers. It is not enough to compare the difference between his teaching and theirs. There is that. And in fact, again, we might be content with that. This is what Paul teaches. This is what the false teachers teach. And so we like Paul's because it is in... uh, accordance with scripture it follows the Bible these what they teach is in fact false no Paul points out to the difference in their living the way that they live his way of life his purpose his aim in living and his reason for his living he points out his virtues faith patience love endurance These are virtues that Paul has written about that we've studied before. I'd only mention one here in particular, and that is love. Because it stands in contrast, if you remember, that they are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. Paul is marked by love. He loves God, and he loves his neighbors. His love is not misdirected. It is not about money. It is not about pleasure or self. It is about God and those around him. His love is properly directed. And it is seen in the fact of his faith, his fidelity, his patience in the face of trying people, his endurance in the face of trying circumstances. You might ask yourself, why would Paul, or why should I, for that matter, live a life of fidelity? Why should I be patient? Why should I be marked by endurance? And Paul would say, because of love. It flows from love. Something has been rattling around in my head for the last couple of weeks. 
So I've considered the behavior of people in our culture. Behavior which is not only uncivil, but it's also lawless in in light of scripture. And take something as prosaic or pedestrian as advertising. Why do people try to manipulate other people and do do so through images and such? Why do why are people why do they behave in a provocative way? Why do people do what they do? And the answer that comes back to me again and again is they do not love their neighbors. Or they love something much more than their neighbors and that usually is money. That's why they do what they do. That if in fact I loved my neighbor, I would be careful how I live my life. But if I don't love my neighbor, then I see him or her as someone to be manipulated to get out of them whatever I want for my own purposes. Because Paul loved his fellow man, he lived as he did. And a part of the result of loving and living as he did was persecution. You may notice he says, um, what happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. These are three cities in Galatia. You might say, so what? Lystra is Timothy's hometown. So Paul is not writing about something that Timothy knew nothing about. He, in fact, may have witnessed the persecution that Paul endured. Paul goes on to write, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. In Paul's words, this can lead to persecution. But what we oftentimes find is that people who are in Christ are not in the world. That is, they isolate themselves from the world, and therefore they are not persecuted. They withdraw. Others, on the other hand, are in the world, but they are not in Christ. And so they're not persecuted because they have assimilated. It seems that the options are either to withdraw from society or simply to assimilate into society. Because who wants to be persecuted after all? Paul's words seem so strange. They may sound so strange to us. But listen to what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the reasons it sounds so foreign to us is that in this country, for the most part, for the last two or three centuries, persecution has not existed against the church. That may, be, that may change, and we should be aware, we should be warned. However, I do think that what Paul writes in verse number 12 must, is followed by verse number 13. It is true about his circumstances, but if you take it along with verse number 13, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, that is to say, while Christians may, in fact, be persecuted, false teachers and their followers may not. In fact, they just get worse and worse. They are deceived and they deceive. Okay. Now, finally, in verses 11 through 14, we come to the charge that Paul is giving Timothy. It begins in verse 14. I'm sorry, through verse 17. But as for you, 
continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As I mentioned earlier, verse number 14 starts with, but as for you. And stop and think a minute. Paul is seeking to draw a contrast between the false teachers and Timothy. So verse number 13 is sort of one of those verses we find oftentimes, a hinge verse. That is, it refers back to verse number 12, but also ahead to verse number 14. Where the false teachers have gone from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, Timothy is to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. This is, in fact, what Timothy is to do. There are two reasons that Paul gives. First, because you know those from whom you have learned it. By the way, it's interesting, it is plural. He hasn't just learned it from Paul. Um, In the first chapter, he mentions his mother Lois and his grandmother, or his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. But also in chapter 2, verse 2, the things you have heard heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. It isn't just that it's from Jesus to Paul to Timothy. There have been many other people who have taught Timothy as well. Timothy has learned from them. And he says, because from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Once again, Timothy is reminded of the role of his mother and grandmother, who have taught him from an early age the Holy Scriptures. In the words of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Scripture is able to make us wise. In contrast to the the false teachers who are marked by folly and who are deceivers, Timothy is gaining wisdom from Scripture. The wisdom is personified in Jesus Christ and salvation through faith in his name. Then we come to what is perhaps the most familiar verse uh, in this chapter. But whose significance I think we in fact may miss because we're so busy trying to create a doctrine here, a doctrine of inspiration. Um, The King James has the more familiar to many of us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The ESV has all scripture is breathed out by God. I'd point out two things. The first may seem like I'm splitting hairs. It is that scripture is inspired or God-breathed as opposed to the writers being inspired. That is to say, Paul was not inspired, but his writings were. And again, it might seem like I'm splitting hairs, but I think it's an important distinction. The second is critical for this passage. Remember that the context is important. Let me ask you, stop and think a minute. Can you think of another place or other places in the Bible that speak of God breathing or the breath of God? There's one other place. Genesis chapter 2. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You see, both humans and scripture are, in a sense, contain the breath of God. They are God-breathed. And I'm convinced that this points to scripture being alive, that it is living. In fact, in Hebrews Hebrews 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. So when Paul says that it is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we would agree, yes, scripture is absolutely alive and it functions as something that is alive. It isn't simply impersonal information. It isn't dead, inanimate. It is, in fact, alive. And therefore, it is profitable, as the King James has it, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The teaching and rebuking point to right belief. The scripture is alive and it teaches us that which is the right thing to believe. But it also corrects and trains in righteousness. Here, Scripture is alive and it teaches us how we are to live our lives. It deals with our behavior. It teaches what is right. It rebukes what is wrong in terms of doctrine. It corrects what is wrong in terms of behavior. And it trains in righteousness. Now, I do want to be clear that false teachers, in fact, oftentimes do use Scripture. But they do not use all of Scripture and All scripture is breathed out by God. False teachers tend to pick and choose what they like. But no, we cannot. It is there, it is alive to teach us what is right and to teach us how we are to live our lives. What is the purpose of scripture? That the man of God, who is also alive because of the breath of God, and he has been reborn by the work of Christ may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We'll come back to this, the Lord willing, next week. But in charging Timothy to continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, Paul points out that the truth is to be lived out in the lives of believers. And secondly, that Paul had lived out the truth. And thirdly, that the truth is personal, not as in private, something that's only true for me, but in fact, something that is alive, just as I am alive. If you wish, I am a living being, and this is the living word of God. And so it is to train me, it is to teach me, it is to correct me. It is not as though I am alive and this is dead, that this is just information that is like a, a guidebook, if you wish, or an instruction book. This is something that is alive by the Spirit of God. And it is to teach me. It is to guide me. It is to involve all of me. You see, I find that oftentimes doctrine is much more exciting than scripture. But I think in part because it is oftentimes impersonal rather than personal. Scripture is personal and it is in fact alive. And it is to transform our thinking our view of things, and our behavior. Several things occurred to me as I was preparing this sermon. First of all is, Paul makes my, my task 
my responsibility all the more difficult. Because if all I had to do was in fact teach you from the Bible, then that would, that would not be that difficult. But Paul says that I'm also to be an example to you. That I'm not simply to teach what scripture says, I am to live it out. But you know, I'm not the only one who's supposed to do that. All of us are. We are in fact to teach each other as we live out the truths in our lives. The second thing that occurs to me, and let's be frank with one another here, Oftentimes we may find it difficult to read the Bible. We might get bogged down, we might get tired. It may be so familiar that we lose interest. I think we would do well to take to heart what Paul says. Scripture is alive. It is living. And if we would view it that way, it might change our perception. And it has a purpose to change what we believe and to change how we live. And so as we come to it, we should pray for grace and for the Spirit to guide us. We should come to it not as any other book, as a textbook uh, or even a novel that might be exciting to read. This, in fact, is a living book. It is the living Word of God. God breathed it out. It is alive as we are. And we should allow it to correct us, rebuke us when necessary, teach us what is right in our belief, and teach us what is right in terms of behavior. It's not just an instruction book. It's not just a textbook. It is, in fact, the living Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that most of us are familiar with the doctrine of inspiration. And we do, in fact, believe the Bible to be your word. And we would be willing to stand up for that and perhaps even suffer for for believing that. But living after the Enlightenment, as we do, we've just come to see things as facts or values. And so the Bible becomes a collection of facts or maybe a collection of values But in no way do we see it as alive. Help us to understand that as you breathed into Adam and he became a living being and we are his descendants. In the same way, scripture is God breathed. You breathed it out. It is living. It is active. And by your grace, if we would let it, it would correct us and rebuke us. It would train us as we should be trained. It isn't simply a matter of what we believe, though that is important, but how we put our beliefs into action, how we live out our faith. That it is important that we be marked by fidelity, by patience, by endurance, by love. It is not enough to say that we believe certain things. we should live the truth. May your spirit bring these truths home to our hearts. May we not be hearers only of the word, as though it's merely information, but doers as well.
We pray for Fidesz and Mary Grace. That you would continue to comfort them, strengthen them, this time of loss. May they have a sense of your presence with them. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And as we go through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your living presence with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.